0: Good morning again to each of you. So I want to let you in on one of the differences that Nis- uh, Nicole and I have discovered after being married for about 20 years, um, and that is that we approach um, being in high places and particularly driving in high places a little bit differently. So um, early, fairly early on after we got married, I needed to work in Southern California, and Nicole got to go along. So we got to go exploring uh, north of LA up in Malibu, and there are fantastic mountains and ravines and all of this backcountry there. And I was having a great time, um, only to discover pretty quickly into this that this was not fun for Nicole um, on these little winding mountain roads. Um, another place that this shows up here for us is, uh, this is the Bay Bridge. And I, I actually love the Bay Bridge. I think it is so beautiful. Um, I love to drive across it and uh, I thoroughly enjoy it. So hopefully, has everybody been across this bridge? Most everybody's been, been across the bridge. So you can see here's the toll plaza for some sense of, of scale. You know, there's a tractor trailer. So from my perspective, this is a lot of fun. And the part that irritates me a little bit is I wish the whole thing would be this high and not have this long low stretch there. And what I really would like is if they, would just put, if they would put a turnoff lane there where you could hang out on the top and just enjoy being up there. Because it a, it's a really cool place and you just can't spend much time there. That, that is my experience. Nicole on the bridge is primarily interested in getting across the bridge. And she actually prefers if I'm not driving along the edge. But you, you can't see much if you're in the middle. And she also likes to make the point that if I'm driving, I really shouldn't be seeing all that much anyway. But to me, again, it, this is a great fun and you should be enjoying, enjoying the drive and enjoying being up there. So I don't know, should we take a little poll? Who, who is most like, you know, this is a fun bridge, I like to spend time on it, I wish there was a pull off there. Who, who would be in that camp? Okay, we could take a little road trip together. Who all is more, let's just get across that thing, center lane is fine, who, who would be in? Okay, so if we ever have to carpool, you know who to, who to ride with. But uh, Nicole's basic instruction to me on the bridge is, we're coming up to the bridge, and you know, Ivan, would you please watch the road? Yes, I will try to watch the road, but I'm having a good time. Um, so anyway, let's keep that in mind, uh, Nicole's instructions of what am I watching and where are my eyes as we go through a, a story here. Um, this morning, I'd like to just walk through an Old Testament story in 2 Chronicles, and I'm going to give a little background here because my assumption is that you all have not been thinking about the life of Jehoshaphat this week. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of background and then we're going to cover one story here. Um, so in, in Scripture, well, the book of Second Chronicles uh, was written after the exile, so around the time of Ezra. And so you had God's people, or well, God giving God's people their history what all had happened, what God had done, and what the kings had done. And so that's how we get Second Chronicles, so they can keep the big picture in view. So we have the children of Israel. Uh, they, they ask for a king. We have Saul, we have David, and Solomon. And then the kingdom splits. And so Jehoshaphat is the fourth king of Judah, which is the southern, uh, the southern part of Israel. So you have the two tribes in the south. Ten tribes in the north, and Jehoshaphat is is king, he's the fourth king that reigned. I'm going to do just a little bit of background. Our primary text will be chapter 20, but again, a little more background on, on Jehoshaphat here. So, Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. So, notice this. So, Jehoshaphat is king of Judah, but is strengthening himself against Israel. So, when When Israel and Judah split, there's civil war now for the first three kings. And when Jehoshaphat comes in, it's going to be the first time that they're not actually at war against each other. A little more background. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and sent garrisons in the land of Judah. And in the cities of Ephraim that Asa, his father, had captured, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father, and walked in his commandments, and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord, and furthermore, he took the high places and the ashram out of Judah. So finally, this king, we have a king who's seeking the Lord takes out um, the things that had, had trapped the people, and God is establishing his kingdom. Uh, so a little more background. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials. So he sent Levites and officials throughout all of the country. And they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them. They went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. So there is a, there's a revival that's happening here. Verse 10, and the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the land that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute, and the Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. So again, I just want us to get the picture that finally God is bringing them peace, and the Philistines, who had been their enemies for years, are actually bringing Jehoshaphat gifts, which it is, that's a hard name for me to say repeatedly. I might have to shorten it here at some point. Um, so this is all the background of what's happening. Next chapter, now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he made a marriage alliance with Ahab. So yes, this is Ahab and Jezebel, um, who is king over Israel. So he makes a marriage alliance um, He has everything going for him, but he makes a marriage alliance with Ahab. And chapter goes on to basically say that they got together, and Ahab wined and dined him and said, look, there's this guy that I want to go attack. Will you come with me? And we know the story. So um, Jehoshaphat says yes, even though it's prophesied this is a bad idea. And that's where Ahab says, well, let me disguise myself so I don't look like a king. All the army comes after Jehoshaphat. He is about to die. He seeks the Lord. God spares him, um, and he comes back home, and this is the next chapter, and he is reprimanded for seeking an alliance and for, for this unwise choice. That is chapter 19, and uh, that's a prophet that confronts him, and then here is how Jehoshaphat responds. Um, so Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem. He went out among again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. So now we come to chapter 20. So we have a godly king who fell prey to making ungodly alliances, and he's trying to turn the nation back to God again. And we are going to pick up our story in chapter 20, verse 1. Um, As we walk through this story, I find it just incredibly rich um, because it deals with things that we deal with. So fear and being overwhelmed are a big part of the story. Prayer, how we pray, is a big part of the story. And praise, what, part, what factor does praise play in our life? Those are all things that we'll see and talk a little bit about the story. But in the end, I want to bring us back to one question out of this, and hopefully, hopefully we can identify with at least the feelings that people were going through in the story, even if we can't you know, with the specific situation that they were in. All right, so let's, uh, let's jump into chapter 20, uh, verse 1 of 2 Chronicles. So after this, after all of those things, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Meunites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. So after all of this had happened, you know, thinking back on his life, initially God had held back all of the attacks. And now, that's no longer the case. There's a huge attack coming his way. Why did God change? Why did, or why, did, did God, um, why was God doing this? It may have been because of his alliance, or it may have just been God was working his sovereign plan. We don't know for sure. But if you're Jehoshaphat, and you just repented and turned the country back to the Lord, is this what you would expect to happen next? That all of a sudden, now we're under attack. It's not at all what I would have expected. And often in my life, I can find myself with that, you know, kind of that attitude. Well, if we're walking with the Lord, if we're obeying the Lord, then why is all of this happening? So after all of this. So then some men come and they tell him that the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Midianites are all coming, uh, coming after him. All right, a little bit more um, background here and just some history. So I talked about the southern part of, of Israel. That's Judah. and Right there is Jerusalem. Here is Israel. So what's happening now is you've got uh, this country up here, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites are all coming together. You've got three countries who are coming together, and Scripture tells us that they are right here in Engedi. So if all three of these countries have joined their forces and marched their armies here, they certainly have some bad intentions. Jerusalem. And Jehoshaphat is in Jerusalem, which is about 12 to 15 miles away. So for context, I mean, it's essentially he's, he's in Manassas and the troops are here, vice versa. And they're coming and saying, um, this is what's happening. So how does Jehoshaphat respond? It says, then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah So the first thing we notice is he was afraid. And you know what? I would have been too. You had all of these countries coming at you, and his first response is, he's afraid. And I think that all of us deal with fear or feeling overwhelmed to some degree or another at at certain um, spots of our life. So notice what happens. He is afraid, but what is his next action? He sets his face to seek the Lord. Um, So that was a, it's a resolve in spite of his fear, he turns to God um, to seek the Lord. Brandon, could you connect the, um, could you connect that back up again if it cooperates? So in spite of his fear, that's his first action. And I find it interesting and actually instructive to me that he turns his heart to seek the Lord, and it's not just, what should we do? I mean, I know he wants an answer from the Lord, but he's actually just, he's seeking the Lord. And I think that's so, there's so much there for me in times when I feel afraid, I don't know what to do, to just seek the Lord. God himself is what we need. And that in spite of our fear, um, we can do that. So that's how he responds. He, he sets his face to seek the Lord. He proclaims a fast throughout all of Judah, um, and I won't spend a lot of time talking about fasting, but throughout Scripture there is, there is some connection between fasting and seeking the Lord. And it's not that we're twisting God's arm or, or anything like that, but there is, there is a way of letting the Lord know that we're serious and we're, we're bringing it to Him. So that's what He does. He, he proclaims a fast throughout all of Judah. And verse 4, "...and Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord." So they respond, and it tells us that everywhere they came, and I don't fully know the significance, but it says all of the cities that were spread out throughout of Judah, that were there to defend it, they all emptied out and came to seek the Lord together um, in Jerusalem. So one of the things I want us to notice is that when we're in a situation that causes us to fear and overwhelms us, that we're really at a crossroads at that point, and we can respond in, in many different ways. All right, verse 5, and Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. So they're gathered at, at Solomon's temple, and, and he's, kind of, he's standing at the, the entrance to the temple facing the crowd, and the crowd would have been facing, facing the temple, looking in at the Holy of Holies, and he's standing there, and none of them know what to do. So Jehoshaphat is going to lead them in a prayer, and I think the prayer is very rich and instructive for us as well. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. So he begins by just praying the character of God, who God is. So God is in heaven, he's over all the kingdoms. And this is just as true today as it was then, that God is ruling over all the kingdoms, In his hand are power and might so that nobody can stand against the Lord. And again, this is true for whatever we're facing today. So he begins his prayer by by just looking at, at God's character. When I'm afraid, I need to know the power of God. When I'm afraid, I need to go back to the power of God. He continues his prayer. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. So he continues praying, and he's remembering what God has done. And what he's really doing is remembering God's promises. God, do you remember you gave this land to Abraham? And when we built the temple, you promised that if we come here and pray, you're going to hear our prayer. And so he's praying back to God his promises. When I'm afraid, I need to remember the promises and the character of God. And he's pouring that out to God. Then we come to verse 10, and he says, And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. So the first part of this prayer is um, focused on who God is and his promises, and now does this sound a little bit more like just us? Basically, in plain English, he's saying, Look, God, do you see what's happening? And furthermore, the reason these people are here is because you did not let us attack them. And he's laying out this request to God. Um, he's saying, look, now behold. Um, this is very interesting, and I, won't, I just want to introduce the idea, and we're not going to spend time on it. But he says that they were not allowed, that God would not allow them to destroy these, these nations. So who are these people? And the three countries are, um, they're the two sons of Lot, and they are descendants of Esau. And so God had actually not let them attack them, and he had actually given them land. And so they were, they were to be there. And so it's, anyway, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. And what happened then when Israel got sent to Babylon, these three countries were, they were super excited about this, and they were going to move in and take over for Israel. And God punishes them and actually brings Babylon after them, Two of them disappear from, from history largely, but they all three factor into prophecy. So if you're reading through Daniel and Ezekiel, you're going to hear about these countries. So anyway, that's the whole background. And and Jehoshaphat is saying, look, God, this is all of you, and they're coming up to attack us. Like, you do see this, right? And then he goes on and he finishes our prayer, and and this, I would say, is the whole turning point and the hinge of of the, whole cha- of the whole chapter in this whole episode. O oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So after all of that, that's where he ends his prayer. He says, God, would you help? And he says, we don't have the power. We don't have the smarts. We have no idea what to do, but we're here and our eyes are just, are fixed on you. They're looking at God. So again, just looking at, at prayer and how he prayed, the character, the promises, and just the, God, you see this, and then saying, I don't have answers, but my eyes are on you. Let's keep going in the, in the chapter. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children, so I don't know why we're told this after the prayer and not before, but I think one possibility is it may just be highlighting. These people truly had they had no answers. They have all of their children's all children, all of their little ones, and they're there just seeking the Lord. So can you imagine how that would feel if we would put ourselves in their shoes? We're we're all together, our whole families are there. The you know, there's huge armies coming that that we can't face. Verse 14 speaking about the Holy Spirit and God operating in the Old Testament. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the son of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So they're all gathered there, and God's Spirit comes on one person, and it's not, it's not the king, it's not the priest, it's, it's a Levite that they had set aside to lead in a music ministry. So they're all gathered there, and God's Holy Spirit comes on onto that person. And I don't know, this may have been surprising that this was the person God chose to speak to or through. I don't know. Um, but God speaks to this person, and he says, And he said, Listen, all Judah and all and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. So he comes with a big command to not be afraid, and he says, look, this battle is not yours. And this is something that I need to remember in my life as I'm, if we're walking with the Lord and we're facing battles, the battle really is not ours in the end. The battle is the Lord's, and that's where our courage can lie. So he tells him, the battle is not yours, and he goes on to say, tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. So the message is very clear that the next day they are to go and head out to um, go down to this army. So can you imagine if you're here and the message of the Lord comes and it is that you are to go head out. You're not supposed to hunker down. You're supposed to go head out and this is supposed to happen tomorrow. And and just notice all of the verbs, the action verbs. Like you're supposed to stand firm. You're gonna hold your position. Um, You're gonna go out against them and God is gonna be with you. So how would you respond if, if somebody spoke this word and said, this is what we're going to do. Let's see what, what they do. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So one of the things that strikes me here is that The word of the Lord comes, and they are actually worshiping and praising God before God has actually fulfilled this prophecy. He's told them what he's going to do, but God's word, they believed it and accepted it, and it it created a reaction of of worship. So they bow down and worship, and then again, the Levites, who who were designated to lead in the music ministry, kind of spontaneously, I think, stand up and they lead them in praising the Lord with a very loud voice. And they arose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. So I noticed that they did follow through and they rose early the next morning. and again, if I put myself in their shoes, you don't know for sure how all of this is going to go. But they get up early in the morning, and they obey. They head out into the wilderness. Remember, the army is about 12 to 15 miles away. Um, where Tokoa was is, about, is right where the army is. So they march out there in faith, and, and the king is telling them, believe. Verse 21, and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. One of the things that's interesting is God clearly told them to go, but we don't read in the story that God told them exactly what to do. And so you, they get out there in the morning and it says when he had taken counsel with the people, so I don't know, but I kind of imagine that they're figuring out, how are we going to go forward? Like, we're supposed to go meet this army. How's this going to work? And, and so what they land on is they, they send the, the singers dressed in holy attire to go before the army, and they're, they're saying this, thanking the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And the word, the word here for, um, for steadfast love is a word that is very hard to translate. Um, I've talked about this before. Michael Card wrote an entire book on this word, and the short, the short meaning of it is that when the person who should give you nothing gives you everything. And so that's what they're saying. They're saying, we're praising the Lord because he really should give us nothing. He's given us everything, and that love um, endures forever. So they, they head out this way. They, they send the worshipers ahead of the army, And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. So, I mean, the terminology sounds... uh, Pretty nice in the end. They all helped to destroy one another. This is a giant battle where everybody turned on each other, and they systematically, well, one country against the other, and then against the other. But notice when all this happens. When the children of Israel began to sing and praise the Lord, God sets the ambush, and all of this takes place. Do the children of Israel know what's happening yet? The text hasn't said, but it's about to tell us. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, they were dead bodies laying on the ground. None had escaped. So the picture I would have is that Israel is marching in obedience. They're almost there. They start praising the Lord, and God sets all of this in motion, and when they come to the actual look to the lookout, all of this has taken place already, and the armies are... They're dead. God has fought for them, and none had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Baraka, or the translation is blessing to this day. And we don't know for sure, um, but people believe that this is the valley where the Valley of Blessing, so not where the army was, but where they gathered to praise the Lord and to thank the Lord um, after God had had done all of that. One of the things that strikes me in all of this is they went out praising the Lord and and God worked when they had acted in obedience. And I think that when we praise the Lord and worship the Lord, it is a way of of deepening our roots in in faith and and honoring the Lord. But I think there's also a spiritual warfare component to when we praise the Lord. Um, So let's not minimize the time that we spend singing together. And I don't want to get us too far off on this, but even think about Paul and Silas when they were in prison you know God acted they were in as bad a situation as you could get, and they were praising the Lord and God acted when they were um when they began praising the Lord so three days to gather all the spoil, a fourth day to praise the Lord and uh this is largely what we end up knowing um about jehoshaphat there's a little bit more a little bit more in the end um So after all of that, I guess I want us to just circle back. And the thing I'd like us to focus in on here in closing is that the end of the prayer in verse 12 that I really feel is the the key to this passage is where he comes to God and he says, God, would you do this? For we are powerless and we don't know what to do. And of all the things and all the feelings to have in life, to be in situations where you don't feel like you don't have the power and you don't know what to do, those are very very uncomfortable situations. Um, but that actually wasn't the most dangerous thing about this. The most dangerous thing here would be is if, they, if their eyes would have looked elsewhere. Um, that would have been the most dangerous thing about the situation, not being where we feel overwhelmed, not being where we don't know what to do. Because I'm going to guess if, we're, if we would all be honest, we probably all are in situations now that we... Feel a little powerless to change, and that we don't know what to do. Um, And so I just want to encourage us today that's not the problem. In fact, God regularly has us there. Um, The main main issue is where, where are my eyes? What am I looking at? And part of the reason I think that God almost, I don't know, yeah, God wants us to live here in dependence on Him is I said we don't know much about Jehoshaphat. We know a little bit. After all of this, do you know what he does? He makes yet another alliance, and he comes up with a great idea. He's going to send a bunch of ships over and take, and take more things. And you know what God did? God destroyed his whole navy and said, you weren't, that's not what you were supposed to do. So I just want to encourage us that this lesson for us is not, it's not a one-time thing. It's actually lifelong where when we feel powerless and when we don't know what to do, that we learn um, to put our eyes on, on Christ. So going back to the, the bridge and when you're driving, it's also thinking about people who are, are new drivers here. So I think Liam has been doing some driving, maybe Lynn is fairly new. When you head out to drive, um, you, you often you, you tell people, watch the road, look ahead, You don't send people out onto the road saying, now, there's a lot of other traffic here, so above all else, I want you to watch the other traffic. And there's a lot of things that can be happening on the sides of the road, so keep your eyes on the sides of the road. You know, it's a disaster. We just say, keep your eyes where you're headed. And so for me, I think this is the crux of the story, the crux of the issue is, like, where, where are my eyes? And there's so many things that, we could look at, and God is just calling us back to your eyes are meant to be on me. Even if you don't know what to do, your eyes are meant uh, to be on me. And in the New Testament, it's, it's explained this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This word here of looking to Jesus, it's only in the New Testament twice, and it simply means this, to look away from all else and to fix one's gaze upon. The only other place it's used in the New Testament is Paul is saying, I want to come to you, but I'm not going to come until I see how this works out. And so, it was it means i'm looking at this first and then when that resolves i'm going to look somewhere else and so our direction is that we are to look to god above all else that he is what we're focused on and and what we're looking towards looking to but our eyes are on him i do want to just share a quote here related to these situations that we find ourselves in and this is this is, not, this is more of my prayer than my testimony. I, I will just say that. This is Hudson Taylor. It matters not how great the pressure is, only where the pressure lies. As long as the pressure does not come between me and my Savior, but presses me to Him, then the greater the pressure, the greater my dependence upon Him. I just want to encourage you, whatever it is that you find yourself in, Let's let the pressure push us towards Christ and in the end, just focus on him. Keep our eyes there, even where we don't have have all of the answers. But our eyes are on you. All right, would you join me for prayer and stand where you're at? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you for your word. And God, I, I know that uh, very often in life there are many situations that I can't control. I don't have the power to change, and neither would it be good for me to. Um, God, there's many situations that we run into we don't know what to do. Um, and Lord, in the end, you tell us that we are to fix our eyes on you, that you are our hope, and that you will care for us. Um, so God, I pray for each person here. Um, Lord, I don't know if there's people who are Are struggling with us this morning, um, just need to be reminded of of looking to you. I know that I do. And God, I pray that today and throughout this week that our eyes would be just on you. We would fix our gaze on you, look at you above all else, God, and that in doing so we could trust you and that we could also be changed to be more like you um, through looking at you and, and walking with you. God, thank you that you're good, and I pray, Lord, that you would just Uh, care for us and lead us. Um, We love you and give you our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.